How does asking tough questions about what we believe support and service our faith? When might we need to be surprised by new discoveries and new voices about who God is? How should major events in our world impact the way we think about God? And how does it all come down to love? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Professor Mike Higton. Mike is Professor of Theology and Ministry at Durham University's Department of Theology and Religion. And our question today is, why does doctrine matter in the life of the church? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Mike Higton, welcome to Talking Theology. It's great to be here, Philip. Mike, your, your role is Professor of Theology and Ministry at Durham University, which sounds frightfully grand. Tell us what that role involves in real life. At the moment, it largely involves sitting at home talking to people on Zoom. But in normal life, I do a fair amount of teaching, mostly modern, uh, modern interpretations of Christian doctrine. I have PhD students. But actually, the biggest part of my job and the reason that my post was created is part of the Common Awards Partnership. So Durham is the validating university for most of the Church of England's ordination training around the country and various ecumenical partners as well, Methodist, Baptist, URC. And so I spend the bulk of my time working on sort of academic leadership for that that partnership. Mike, you... Your journey to theology is an interesting one, isn't it? Because you were studying maths and you switched your degree from maths to theology. What what prompted that switch and and your kind of exploration of theology that's obviously continued long beyond that first university foray? Well, initially it was, to be honest, it was the push out of maths. I I realised I wasn't quite as good as I hoped to be. I'd wanted to sort of head into theoretical physics and probably wasn't good enough for that. And I was better at pure maths than applied maths. So the kind of plan wasn't working out. And initially, I wanted, uh, I decided I was going to move into the history and philosophy of science and got most of the way through um, the process for that. And then shortly before the beginning of my um, third year at university, I had a conversation with my vicar, the vicar of Holy Trinity in Cambridge, Don Humphreys, back then. And um, told him that I was going to do history and philosophy of science, but that one day I wanted to do some theological study. But obviously I wouldn't do that in a a secular university where they were all liberals. And he uncharacteristically, he was a very gentle man, but he told me off. He told me off having such weak faith if I didn't think I could cope with studying theology somewhere where people disagreed with me as I was then. And um, I changed to theology literally the next day. I thought about what he'd said, was deeply struck by it, and made all the arrangements the next day. It was slightly chaotic beginning to term. And I haven't really looked back. I've, I, I fell in love with it very quickly. Whether if I were to go back now and talk to my, whatever it was, 20-year-old self, would think that it had been a disastrous move and that I'd ruined my faith, I do not know. I have my suspicions. Mike, over the years that as you've you've done further study and taught in a range of contexts, including now here in Durham, you've particularly focused around doctrine and its theology, theological basis and its relevance for the church. What was it that kind of 
led you to focus on that particular area of theological uh, research and interest? And it started very early on. I mean, right back in that first year of, of studying theology, sort of the end of my th- three undergraduate years at university, I realised that although I, I really enjoyed the historical work, I really enjoyed the, the biblical work, the exegetical work, the stuff that really got me going was where sort of the ideas that emerged from exegesis or that were discussed in the history, where you thought those through in their own terms and thought about their interconnections and their implications how Christians put them together in, into a story about God's ways with the world and see where they fit within that story and, and thinking through the assumptions that Christians make as they do that. All of that kind of ideas-focused work really got me excited. And so I ended up specialising a bit more in the philosophy and doctrine modules that were available to me. And then when I got to a couple of years later to start a PhD, having got really excited about, particularly about the topic of Christology, so within the world of doctrine, thinking about the doctrine of Christ and and Christ's humanity and divinity. That was the topic that I'd got sort of most interested in. But I, at that point, and I don't remember the genesis of this really, but I, I decided I wanted to do something on how those ideas connected to ordinary devotion to Jesus amongst non, you know, Christians without any academic training. And the PhD in that area of the relationship between academic or scholarly discussion of doctrine and ordinary Christian belief. And that's been a concern ever since. So let's think, if we can, generally about the the importance of doctrine to the exploration and life of Christian faith today. You've just completed a very major work called The Life of Christian Doctrine, and you've completed a much shorter work for Grove Books called Why Doctrine Matters. Let's kind of tease out the answer to that Grove booklet question, if we can, which is speaking as as an introductory kind of reflection, why does doctrine and its study matter today? What are the kind of your starting points to reflect on that question? Well, I think the first point I'd make is that Christians are always already involved together in the process of making sense of their faith, of finding some roughly coherent way of putting together all the bits and pieces of of faith in a way that's habitable enough to to live within um, together. And that involves them learning how to tell stories about God and God's ways with the world and where they fit within those, those stories. And at the heart of that process of making sense of faith I think the the way I'd try and describe the core of it is the process of trying to imagine or recognize more deeply the ways in which God loves us and to um, learn how to respond to that love and live that love out in, in the world. So that's kind of Christians are always already involved in that process of, of learning. The sort of the formal or explicit study of doctrine is nothing more than a way of trying to be a bit more explicit about that and to provide a support for that process in conversation with others, in conversation with scripture, in conversation with the early church, in conversation with the tradition, in conversation with the sort of worldwide community of of people asking these these questions today. Doctrinal theology is pursuing that conversation when it's academic or scholarly doctrinal theology, it's, it's pursuing it as a sort of high level of explicitness. 
really reasoning it through, thinking it out. But it's in real continuity with the ordinary processes, or should be in real continuity with the ordinary processes of making sense amongst ordinary Christians. You see doctrine as something which supports the, what one might say, the core kind of practices of Christian faith, which is being loved and loving in return, rather than sort of um, problematizing or just simply making it more complicated for the sake of making it more complicated. Other you, you see doctrine is something that is there to support and to give weight to and foundation to the key disciplines, if you like, of the Christian life. Is that fair? Yeah. I mean, I'd want to say two things. One is, you know, if you were to take all the the sort of the scholarly or academic doctrinal theologians, the people who do this really explicitly, and lock us away for a year, the church wouldn't stop. Christian life would still go on. We're not essential. We're not the heroes of the faith. We're a one support service to the faith. And I hope that eventually you'd notice we were missing. But it, it would take a while for the lack to become apparent. So yeah, very much want to see us as as providing one kind of support service. Um, I do think that one of the supports that that this kind of exploration can provide is a, about asking certain questions, and sometimes those are uncomfortable and difficult questions. But they are, again, they're in line with the questions that crop up in the midst of the life of faith. Anyway, sometimes they're about you know, have you noticed actually there's a connection between this deep sense we have that God loves everyone equally, that God's love is imp- utterly impartial on the one hand, and some of the ways in which we talk about uh, the church, which make it sound like actually God's got favourites. There's a connection there which we need to dig into, and we might end up going really deeply into that and teasing it out in, in great detail. But the payoff in the end is in terms of learning to inhabit the love of God more richly with others in the world. So it's a support for that. Sometimes the support is a long way back from the coalface. You know, some uh, work in doctrinal theology is really close to that surface. It's, it's really directly, as it were, talking about the love of God and how to inhabit it. Sometimes you're several steps back from that. You're clarifying something needed to clarify something else, to clarify something else, which might help directly with the life of faith. Although I very firmly believe in those connections to the life of faith, I'm also deeply in favour of really good, very abstruse work, which is sometimes necessarily right in the background. Because as we, in the midst of ordinary Christian life, put um, the pieces together into a story, as we make sense of the faith, we're making in the background deep assumptions about how the world works, about how we work, about how things are made up. And sometimes those assumptions need unpicking and it takes really fine scalpels as it were to get down to them and work out what ideas we're actually putting into play something we think is completely straightforward turns out to contain difficult or problematic assumptions quite a long way below the surface and you might need as i say really fine tools really delicate tools to get at those so it's not at all that i think all academic theology should be immediately and obviously connected to the surface level of practice but it does matter that it all connects back somehow to that surface level. Let's think about a practical example, if we can, Mike. You, your initial interest was in Christology. It may be in this area or another area where you want to point to exactly that level of sort of fine tuning or, as you say, kind of careful work where you think doctrine is forcing us to ask some tough questions about 
our inherited Christian faith there. I want to give you an example about where do you think some of this kind of backroom work is is drawing attention to some really important questions that we need to be thinking through? This is a slightly risky thing to do. I'll tell you what I'm beginning to think about now. Having finished the one big book, I'm now beginning work on the next one, which will take several years to write. And I'm right at the stage of sort of sketching out where I think I might be heading. So this is not worked through at all. Having written more generally about the sort of nature of Christian doctrine, I'm going back to my first love with Christology, doctrine um, of Christ's person and, and divinity and humanity. And one of the strands of that is there's been quite a lot of work re- recently on thinking through both, as it were, the connection between divinity and humanity in Christ and then the way in which that ties to Christian life for all of us. And a lot of that work has focused on agency, on, on action and the way in which divine action and human action are united in Christ, and the way in which our action as Christians gets sort of caught up by grace in that union. And Jesus is the one who does what his father wants. He enacts the acts of God in the world. And then we too are sort of caught up in that in our own secondary and derivative way. That turns out to be a really powerful way of articulating Christology feeding out into ecclesiology did for us and we're somehow caught up in that being done to but also doing with yeah and one sort of popular strand in that in particularly in anglican circles for you know 150 years or so has been thinking about the way in which there is a i have to say this quite carefully but there's there's almost a sense in which the church continues the incarnation being christ's hand and hands and feet in the world, carrying on in some way or participating in the activity of Christ, that human activity of Christ, which is the enacting of God's will in the world. And the church sort of gets to carry that on. And and again, that's a really powerful way of thinking, and there's a lot going for it. But one of the things I've been really struck by, particularly in conversation with some black theologians and reading some black theology, has been noticing the way in which quite a bit of the work in that area was written by people like me, confident white male middle-class people with links to establishment, for whom it was quite easy to talk about our agency being the agency that makes the difference in the world. It was a story which subtly put our activity at the centre of the picture of what was going on and did it in a way which cloaked it in humility. Because, you know, when I am most fully committed to Christ, when I am being most obedient, being most of a disciple, that's when my action is most, as it were, in continuity with the action of Christ or the the, the, the continuation of the incarnation. And just in the background, there's very real danger that that becomes a way of blessing my privilege and power and cloaking it in a sort of divine cloak. And it's a way of thinking that perhaps comes quite easily. People are used to being the ones who do rather than the being the ones who are done to. And it also tends to focus on Christ as someone who does and is slightly less good at talking about Christ as one who is done to. And part of the incarnation is that Christ is done to, comes, lives a human life in the world where he is acted upon as much as acting because that's what it means to, to live a, a human life. So one of the things I want to trace through, as I say, prompted in part by conversations with black colleagues who've who've been very good at pointing out this question of where you position yourself in terms of the action. Do you put yourself at the centre of the action in the way in which it's more natural for 
privileged writers to put themselves silently in the middle of the action. I want to sort through, if you think that through, what difference does it make both to thinking about our participation in the story, but also what difference does it make to that account of divinity and humanity? I'm, I'm not expecting to unpick that kind of classic Christian claims about Christ being divine and human, but the way of articulating it, which focuses first and foremost on, a, on agency flowing through, maybe that isn't quite the whole story. And I don't know where I'm headed with that yet, but that's the question I want to ask over the next few years. But it might involve, as you say, a re-picking or re-narrating or re-weaving of that classic kind of articulation of who Jesus is for us and what it means to be part of his action in the world. And in a way which, you know, who knows whether I'll do it well or not, but in terms of the, the shape of the project, it's, it's a sort of classic theological project. In, in one sense, it's prompted by conversations and questions in the world. It's um, encounters with people who see things from a different angle from me, who have a different experience from mine, who can poke me and the theology I've got, the theology of my community and say, hang on, that's, there's something just a bit off about that. But then working that through involves going back to the theological tradition and looking at how these questions of agency play out. They're going back to scripture and seeing the ways in which there are resources there for saying, you know, actually, Jesus isn't just actor. He's acted upon in scripture. How can we make sense of that? Has that been done justice to in the tradition? So it throws you into a conversation where you both are attending to voices in the present and those are sending you back to the past. And you don't know what will emerge out of that in the long run. But the conversation itself is, well, for someone like me, it's very exciting to get involved in that kind of conversation. And it's exciting in the sense that what you said about it takes you back to script to that which is both explicit and implicit in script. I'm remind me something of the ethicist John Wyatt who talks about the incarnation and talks about God allowed his bottom to be wiped in Christ and he talks about that in relation to now that is of course implicit in the biblical narrative of somebody who was a, a baby and yet of course it's not brought out and that's one of the exciting things there is somebody who has no agency a baby and yet what does it mean to believe in that God made human who allowed that to be done to them is that one of the things that that you're thinking of? Yeah, so and one substrand of this is actually quite a lot of devotional writing in the history of Christianity, which is readier to focus on the ordinary helplessness of Jesus, particularly as a, as a baby, but in other ways as well, than we are sometimes now. You get a little bit of it when focusing on um, the tiny infant Jesus in the manger in a way which tends to be it's quite easy helplessness there. You move from that straight into full adult who's in control of everything. And actually there's devotional writing, but there's also implicit things in scripture to dig into, which just focus a bit more on what it meant to be a child growing up. There is other writing about Jesus' bodily functions, but that would probably take us in a different direction. I'm not sure I know much about the bottom wiping side of things, but it is that ordinary stuff of human life, which is dependent, which is which requires the activity of others to flourish. And if Christ became, it was fully human, then Christ was also someone fully dependent on those around him to flourish. It sounds like what you're articulating here, Mike, is therefore the ongoing work of doctrine in the church is something about filling out what is already there rather than sort of moving on or saying, yes, but is there more to be discovered? Would that be a fair assessment? Yes, but, so yes, I think, the fundamental dynamic of theology is of going on unpacking a gift. So in the big book, more than in the smaller Grove book, 
I talk about narrating the start of the church, but we can talk about the resurrection as the birth of the church, the gift given to the world in the resurrection. And in a way that you can see beginning on the Emmaus Road, for instance, the process of unpacking what this means in conversation with scripture, in conversation with each other. Um, that's the fundamental task of, of theology. So in one sense, yes, it's it's an ongoing unpacking of something already given. But that process is one that has surprises in it. Looking at the stories of Acts, followers of Jesus are surprised at the way in which God includes the Gentiles in that story. A huge surprise in the middle of the story that they didn't see coming. But there are other smaller surprises that turn up. And there are also elements of repentance, of realizing that what we thought was an unpacking of this gift has in fact been a betraying of it. And sometimes those can be really deep. So one example I'd point to has been some of the rethinking of Christian theology that's happened in the wake of the Holocaust or or Shoah, where Christians examining their complicity in that atrocity have not been able to say, you know, it was just a few bad apples and people who went off the rails. But I've actually had to say there are some really deep patterns in the way that Christians have thought about the relationship between Old Testament and New Testament or have thought about the relationship of the church to the people of Israel, or have thought about even sort of topics a bit which seem a bit further removed, like the way they've thought about the sinfulness or holiness of the church, which have actually been ingredients in that road to horror. And unpicking those things is sometimes really challenging. You realise that some quite treasured bits of Christian theology, treasured ways of thinking of the church, treasured ways of thinking of the relation of Old Testament to New Testament, treasured ways of thinking of covenant, actually have got problems with them and need not completely throwing out and and replacing with something else, but significant revision. So there is, I think, that capacity or possibility of being called to repentance and revision in the midst of this task of unpacking. You mentioned earlier, Mike, about the way in which it was the dialogue that you've had with some of your black colleagues that's enabled you to impart begin this new project of understanding the idea of agency within Christology. Just wanted to kind of hear a little bit more from you about that. And and in particular, you've argued, I know elsewhere, about the need for ongoing work to make sure that we're listening to voices that have previously been ignored. And you mentioned the other example now in terms of paying full attention to what happened in the cost. What are the different ways in which voices can be listened to? And what is the value? What difference does that make? I struggle to give an answer that doesn't just sound banal at this point to the first part of that, in that you know, it involves listening to real people. And in an academic context, that means you know, listening to colleagues, going along to conferences, going to people's papers, reading their books, talking about them with them. It's, it, in one sense, it's not rocket science. It's quite ordinary forms of listening. It's perhaps trying to be alert to the voices that make us uncomfortable. Particularly, I should say that's particularly someone like me who's in a quite privileged position, has quite a lot of academic power. I guess I'm now a fairly senior academic, quite settled. I think particular onus on people like me to listen out for those voices which challenge that comfort level and not rushing too quickly to speak back. You know, I'm someone who's trained to have an answer for everything. I'm good at making stuff up on the spur of the moment, not always in a way which is helpful in the long term. And actually just shutting up for a while is, which is not something I find easy. 
is just part of this process of learning. And academic work, which takes a long time, that partly means being willing to take quite a long time to work out what to say about some of the pressing issues. Um, I mean, one of the things to to say in this regard, particularly in regard to um, black theology, but you could say this in regard to other challenges as well, is that there's an awful lot of good work out there. There have been understandably and, 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 and in good ways in the wake of the most recent wave of Black Lives Matter things going on. There have been lots of voices in the Church of England saying we need to, to work out how to respond to this. We need to learn how to respond. And some of it has just sounded a bit like we need to be the ones who sort this out. We being the kind of usual suspects. There's actually an awful lot of the thinking's already been done, an awful lot of the diagnosing of the problem's already been done, an awful lot of thinking through possible responses has been done. And most of what someone like me needs to do in a situation like this is pay a bit more attention to that work and learn from it and not rush too quickly to saying, oh, I've got this. Um, Don't worry, you can trust me. I'm now able to run forward with this. I've got a lot more catching up to do. Part of the reason that I've got this long Christology project planned you know this is my task in 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 one little bit of the academic world to really work through some of what i'm hearing and learning for other people and i hope i'll make my own own contribution some way down the line but most of the process is listening and i think what makes for good listening listening in an academic context is very close to what makes for good listening in a pastoral context and when i have my pastoral training or watch other people and hear about it and that both forms of attention you need to the other person but also the forms of attention you need to your own reactions and the wisdom to see what in you is actually a form of defensiveness that is getting in the way of really hearing the challenge from the other person or or, or really listening to someone else's story the ways in which we rush to various kinds of judgment and are very good at disguising that from ourselves including in ways which look really benign. And the same is true on the academic side of just being a bit sceptical about the ease with which I can fit other people's stories into the stories I'm so used to telling and just dwelling a little bit longer until I have given more time to the possibility of being interrupted and set on a slightly different path by what I'm hearing. And that's much easier in face-to-face conversations with people actually building relationships with with people um, so that when you are glib, they can tell you you're being glib. Um, it's easy to be glib with a book and the book doesn't answer back. But when you've got the person there and they say, Mike, no, that that's a huge gift. You might need, therefore, to be surprised or indeed called to repentance, as you've mentioned earlier. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, thinking about this context in which we're having this conversation, which is not face-to-face because we're recording this online as so much of life is we're living in hugely challenging and uncertain times sometimes doctrine is seen as the thing that stays the same in while everything else changes i think we've sort of explored that that's a, an inadequate account of it on its own but it is at least enduring in the life of the church isn't it the, the ongoing understanding of who christ is for example to go back to our earlier question what is it about doctrine and its study that might be of particular relevance or a gift to us in challenging and uncertain times? So the first answer I want to give to that is slightly deflationary. So thinking more about 
not about doctrine itself, but about the work of doctrinal theologians, people like me. I hope that what you know, we doctrinal theologians do is a, a service to the life of the church. But I don't think it's one of the emergency services. When we're faced with deep and urgent challenges, I'm not surprised and not at all upset that the Archbishop of Canterbury doesn't immediately ring me up to say, Mike, what should we do? That's not the role that we can play. And so part of what I want to say is I'm not sure. I've watched with pleasure and delight as various other colleagues have found really important things to say. But thinking of myself as a doctor and a theologian, I don't know that I've got anything very useful to say. I look on with as much bewilderment as everyone else in, as you know, changing lockdown rules uh, face us all. And thinking through in the light of this experience, whether my sense of you know, how God's healing relates to trauma, for instance, has changed, I may find that my thinking's changed some years down the line. But I'm not the kind of person, the kind of role I'm in is not one where I'm going to turn around tomorrow and say, I've got new, new, exciting things to tell you. So that's the sort of deflationary side. On the other side, in terms of the sort of communication of Christian doctrine, a communication you know, supported by but not run by the doctrinal theologians amongst us, as I say, in the end, I think the core of that is helping people to recognize, to imagine the love of God more deeply and to think more wisely about how to live it out. That's not just the role of theology, that's the whole of Christian life there. And hearing again in the midst of turbulent times about the steadfast love of God, that I do think is absolutely necessary. And the little bit of preaching I've done during lockdown on you know, over Zoom and things, even more than normal, I've focused on just telling people again that God loves them and God love, God's love is secure and God's love is there underpinning everything in life and finding ways of saying that as compellingly as possible. That task, I think, is still there and is always there and matters particularly at a time like this. But that's slightly different from my role as a sort of academic theologian puzzling through the conceptual connections that might lie behind that. You've given us lots to think about as well. Uh, Mike Higton, thank you very much indeed for appearing on Talking Theology. Well, thank you. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.